You are listening to the official podcast of The Playlist on IndieWire. I'm your host, Eric McClanahan, and with me today from the staff is Rodrigo Perez, Kevin Jaggernaut, and Jessica Kiang. This week's main topic of conversation is the film Gravity. After its successful first opening weekend, we decided to dive into a spoiler-filled chat, so be warned those who haven't seen the film. But also we hope to touch on some things that really haven't been discussed enough about the film since its release. The rest of the show, we devote some time to a few other newsy topics, and we close out with what will probably be a reoccurring segment where we each give a shout out to a piece of media that we're into this week. So with that, let's drop you right into all the chatter going on over at the playlist. So Gravity, uh, it's done some crazy projections, uh, what, 55.6 million um, in October, which is, uh, Jess, you're saying is the highest October opening? The all-time biggest October opening, yes. Right, so that's incredible. Uh, roughly 80% of Gravity's uh, 55.6 million came from 3D. That's huge because 3D is dying. Um, <clears throat> interestingly enough, uh, and Jess, what was the number that you said 91% was the projected 3D? No, 91% was the advanced bookings, apparently. Advanced bookings, and that was yeah. higher than Avatar. Yes, by 1%, but higher. By 1%. <laughs> um, is that, I saw so many, I, I'm, well, A, like we're all heartened to hear this, these numbers. That's yes. fantastic. Um, great to see Gravity do this so well. Even if some of us have issues with it, regardless, it's better this than you know ninety percent of the other uh, mainstream stuff that comes out generally. At least in the summer, mm-hmm. maybe we're just recovering from that. But um, I saw so many questions of, uh, and, and it, it's so funny because you're like, what? But I saw so many questions of people going, should I see Gravity in three D? And it's like of all the films that um, yes. of, that you're going to ask that of, that's the one. That, and and I, for example, I hate to sh- uh, call him out, but you know Mark Duplass and his wife uh, Katie Asselton, uh, Asselton, uh, uh, they they were said on Twitter last night, we're going to go see Gravity, but we're going to go see it in 2D. And um, he said, like you know, it's a controversial move. And I said, absolutely. Like um, so, I think it's it's interesting that the skepticism of 3D is so high that. Mm. The 3D movie of the year to see is one that people were constant. And I, I had to have conversations with people on Twitter and try and convince them. Like someone was like, why should I bother? And I was mm-hmm. like, you don't understand. Like this has been in, it, uh, engineered for 3D. It's been the 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 3D film to see um, for like, what, two years now? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I think, is this just proof that like, I mean, like the IMAX brand, like has 3D just been watered down? I think that the audiences aren't trusting in it as much because. Well, it's definitely shifted over to um, uh, IMAX, as you say. Um, That's become kind of the the new selling point these days. True, true. Jessica, were you going to jump in there? I haven't really made my thoughts on Gravity known yet. I I listened to you guys talking about it um, after Venice during our uh, festivals podcast. And I think um, you all, you you did like a a really good job of kind of trying to cut through the hyperbole a little bit. And I'm just basically going to trash all that good work because I just absolutely (laughs) unreservedly loved this movie so much. I've seen it twice already. So I basically spent... 50% 50% of my evenings since it's opened watching Gravity. Um, and uh, I've paid the I, I, IMAX 3D surcharge very happily twice over, and I would probably do it again. Um, I absolutely just unreservedly adore it. I think it's brilliant. And one of the things I guess I would have a slight take slight issue with, um, with some of the criticism of it is, uh, it, uh, some of it comes from, uh, I think, overly negatively comparing it to Children of Men. 
And I don't think that gravity plays in that arena at all. And I think it's really heartening that somebody like Alfonso Cuaron can, you know, extend his polyglot tendencies further and do something which is now crushing it as a mainstream movie. Um, mm. I think that's it's really that's really exciting to me. And I love I love a popcorn movie that just doesn't insult my brain. And um, Gravity just did did everything for me. So I loved it. That's great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm I'm on the side with Jessica there for sure. I I, I really love this film as well. But Kevin. You, you've made, you know, you, there were only so many things you could say on that Venice podcast because we were trying mm-hmm. not to, to give anything away, but maybe you'd like to, to, to add to some of this. Yeah, I, you know, I don't want it to make it sound like I hate the movie because I don't. It's, it is definitely um, a unique experience to see in the cinema. Um, I guess my issues with the film were more structural, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me... It sort of fell into a, a routine of like peril, pause, peril, pause, and for, for me, it, it kind of grew a bit wearying, I suppose, because like by the end, by the closing sequence, not to give it away for whoever hasn't seen the film yet or or whatnot, although most people I guess have by now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I just thought that sort of last moment of like escape was almost too much, like for me. Mm. Um. Whereas, yeah, and and so for me, it, that sort of detracted from the experience slightly for me. It's um, interesting because, sorry, should I go ahead? No, yeah, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, because that that last sequence, it is it, it is the, the probably the most divisive part of the film. Um, mm. Even the people I went to see it with for the se- the second time I went to see it, um, we had some discussions about that, and it certainly it releases it it releases its hold um, in the in those last sort of five ten minutes a little mm-hmm. bit. I found. Um, but I was actually kind of glad that it did because seriously, if it had ended any earlier uh, or any more abruptly than it did, I it would I would have got like the bends coming out of that screening. <laughs> right, right. So, you need that so for me, it, it's almost like it's a it's a it's a decompression section. Right. Um, for me, that that's how kind of that acted, um, and I was glad. So I, I wasn't actually stumbling out of the cinema the way I would have been otherwise. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I mean, I have my problems with the film, but I don't have so much problems with the ending. I think it's. Well, it could made made tonally could have been handled slightly different, but you need that catharsis. I mean, after mm. being wound so tight for that ninety minutes in that experience, mm. you, I mean, there's no other option than but than catharsis. Um, and I'd also just like to to say that the second time around, because you know, obviously, when you see a film the second time, you're looking at it slightly differently. But the second time around, and everybody says it about the first time they see it as well, but it really came home to me the second time around. The sound design of this film is mm. absolutely extraordinary. It's really exquisite, and I noticed it much more that second time. And I, I just it gives me goosebumps even thinking about his use of silence and how they use the music mm. and the music itself. It's just it's exquisite. So I, I really think that was that was amazing. I mean. The other thing I wanted to say, it's, it's kind of ridiculous, but the first time I saw this, just, just how much of a transportative visual experience it is, I was there, you know, sitting in the IMAX cinema with my stupid dorky 3D glasses on, and <laughs> uh, it was like I couldn't open my eyes wide, widely enough. I was, I was trying to eat the screen with my eyes. <laughs> it's that, the entire thing, I would have devoured the film, like put it into my eyes if I could have anymore. It was so beautiful to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, yeah, I, I kind of really, like. <laughs> I I really feel like this is uh, the the experience you're describing, Jessica, and it's it's not that off from from mine. Is that this feels like the the best the best example of what Avatar sort of promised, or maybe mm-hmm. the the hope from Avatar visually, like what 
what movies could be like because mm-hmm. it really does feel different in that way that um the like the camera for instance the fact that they can use a digital camera like it has a feel to it that i've never experienced in a film mm-hmm. and um then you throw in the 3d and i do think it's interesting how rod started that there are people that are trepidatious perhaps even though it did really well in 3d uh that the numbers are showing uh, I just I just find it interesting that um, people are still maybe a little bit hesitant, but it sounds like the word of mouth in this film is going to be strong. And, yes, uh, I think so. Well, continue. well, here's the thing: what I what I would be really hopeful for with these numbers and with the 3D is uh, is that I mean, in the context of uh, a market where where certainly studios seem to be realizing that people are becoming wary of 3D, yet this film is doing really well. I mean, if your film deserves to be seen in 3D, people will pay for it. But if it doesn't, they won't. And let's hope that that's the that's the lesson that is learned from it. Right. But I think. We, but I think we have to also remember is that gravity, even just existing, is something of an anomaly. Like it was kind mm. of an act of faith on a uh, Warner Brothers to let Alfonso Cuarón essentially spend four years putting this together with them sort of being hands off and saying we trust you to do this. And I don't know. I think it's fantastic the movie's doing well in 3D because I agree, it totally does deserve to be seen in 3D. It's it's really visually beautifully put together. Um, but whether that will extend, whether that'll be a game change within the industry, I'm not as optimistic just because it's a very crass industry. I mean, it's mm-hmm. expensive. It's, it takes a lot of uh, the kind of faith and uh, patience that I don't think studios generally have for filmmakers. Yeah, but if That's a film, Gravity is already proven to be really successful and, uh, you know, the industry is nothing if not uh, completely willing to to, to copy a, a, a success and try to do that over and over again. Now, uh, it, will it be, I, I don't, is that going to lead but, to more films that are done this way? I don't know. I mean, but true, but even after, even in the wake of something like Avatar, it's not like studios suddenly gave exactly. a bunch of directors all kinds of time and money to go yeah. craft their unique yeah, scientific they vision said, they, yeah. just said, they just said hey 3d people love this so we're just going to convert a bunch of stuff mm. and, yeah. and just kind of ride that train until exactly it's now That's the studio version the studio version of that is like great let's slap 3d on everything yeah yeah without but, but any but thought it, or care right in it, but in, in a context of a market where slapping 3d on things has started to fail as a as a strategy i think the success of gravity's 3d is still hopefully it's it's maybe a green shoot of of some hope that if you give it to a filmmaker, that's, I mean, it is proof. And I mean, say what you will, if you, whether you like the avatar, the film or not, I mean, James Cameron proved that he's one that you should bet on. And so giving it to filmmakers that have the vision uh, mm. has proven mm. to be at least successful. I mean, I guess. Yeah, that, absolutely. Mm. Think about it. There's been four films in 3d that have been made that are worth seeing in 3d. Mm. Yeah. Avatar, Hugo, Life of Pi, and Gravity. And I guess that, that tells you all you need to know because like that they're the ones they're the ones who have elevated the medium. Everyone else is sort of like, I mean, I guess other people have shot in 3D, but you wouldn't, um, like, I, you know, Ridley Scott, I guess, shot th- uh, Prometheus in 3D, but I, I don't know. I'm sorry that doesn't rank up. Uh, to me, it's those four films. Mm-hmm. Those yeah. are the ones that have really, really elevated the medium and made it a truly immersive experience. I'm sure other people um, uh, have shot in 3D. I think maybe even Guillermo shot some of Pacific Rim in 3D. I don't know, but it, I didn't, you know. No. Although we should we should note that gravity is actually post converted. Right. It's post converted, which is fascinating yeah. as well. Oh, interesting. I, mean, I guess it would need to be. But it was right? but it was like constructed yeah. with that in mind. With that in mind. Right. Exactly. Which is a difference. The story which is, is built yeah. It. yeah. 
Well, and I believe they even shot it on film too. When I was looking into that, I was like, holy shit. I was really surprised to see some of the technical sides of it. And that, that, that is interesting, but I guess it's, it's proof that a post conversion can be done well. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Well, a post-conversion can be done well if the vision for the film is there from the start that it's going to be put through that process. Whereas, you know, we all know that now it's just they shoot the film and then decide they want the the extra surcharge on that ticket. So they just run it through a a mill and hope for the best. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Um, I want to get into a a little bit, guys, of what what kind of movie is Gravity when we actually, like, really dig into it. I, I've said offline, I mentioned that I really see this as a horror film. I mean, you could you could place it in the parameters of something like a slasher where Sandra Bullock is is the final girl throughout the whole film and then space is just the killer that's out there. Maybe that's a really simplistic way to look at it, but... I don't really see it as a horror. I see it as a pretty traditional survival narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, as we've discussed, there's a bunch of survival narratives this, this season. Uh, Captain Phillips, All is Lost, even um, 12 Years a Slave is arguably one. I mean, it's, yeah, it totally is. Um, so that's an interesting trend that's also interesting all hitting this month. Um, yeah. like four films of that nature. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, I think it's very much in the tradition of uh, like sort of like that one person against the universe type thing. Um, and it's so it's it's like you know very much overt in that way that it's her in space against you know she has a it's essentially just her um my issues are uh i, I mean i didn't dislike it but i i mean i'm envious of the experience that jessica had i mean i wish i had i wish i had that experience it's certainly not what i had um i think it's a it's a tremendous visual thrill ride i think it's very visceral um, I didn't connect to it on an emotional level. I think the characters are th- kind of thin. Um, I think some of the dialogue in the third act gets a little bit trite. Um, uh, I guess Sandra Bullock is good, but um, and and probably better than some even skeptics think because she helps sell the illusion throughout, um, mm-hmm. much in the similar way that Tom Hanks does in Captain Phillips. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I'm just not moved by it very much. Um, and uh, I guess something that's been nagging at me and uh, lately, especially, it, it, it's funny, it, I talked to James Gray recently, but it, it actually started with um, Breaking Bad, the ending. And I didn't articulate this in the last podcast, but one of the things that was really bothering me about it was that there was really no subtext. Um, everything that was on the, the the surface of Breaking, or everything that happened in, in the finale of Breaking Bad, was pretty much there on the surface, unless you were one of those people that believe or subscribe to the fact that it's some sort of dream, which is regar- uh, ridiculous. But yeah. um, uh, so that's, I guess, my kind of issue uh, as well with Gravity that it's pretty much. Um, what's on the surface is uh, is the movie. It's a survival thrill ride, and I don't know if there's much. I like that sort of chewy, uh, deep texture that makes me uh, that like uh, the films linger. That's uh, the resonant part, which which always uh, is the litmus test. And for me, Gravity sort of like was a bit of a it was like a, a roller coaster where I was like, wow, that was kind of terrific, and then poof, it was gone, and I went back to civilian life. And you really have no interest in going back to see it a second time. Rod, um, Jessica's uh, enthusiasm <laughs> for it makes me makes me want to go. Geez, what am I missing? Like, what? I mean, I certainly didn't see it in IMAX. I wish I would have. Um, um, but I just wasn't. 
as immersed in it as as much I would have as I would have liked. Um, and I don't want to get into it too much because not everyone has seen it. But Captain Phillips was my gravity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it was it was my for me too. I had I had a similar experience with Captain Phillips. I was completely immersed. <clears throat> I was grip, completely gripped. I was biting my nails literally the whole time, and uh, I had an emotional connection to the character. Um, it resonated. It lingered. And there's even some interesting um, subtext for the villains that it try, tries to like. Um, it, it it tries. It, it takes a few uh, lengths to humanize them and sort of subtly uh, inject their uh, their plight as well. Um, and it's kind of. I know a lot of people said it's not enough, but. It's pretty. I think it's pretty interesting because uh, uh, I, I always I always appreciate a movie that um, gives you little touches of something and never spells it out, and you, but you already have a complete understanding of uh, you know their situation. I would just add um, that for me, Captain Phillips sort of gave me um, maybe the emotional punch that I missed from Gravity. Uh, I I just found it it landed with me much more resonantly than than Gravity did. Uh, I guess I wonder if Gravity really demanded much more than the surface layer that it that it provided. I mean, I'm I think it's fair that you guys are comparing the sort of intense experiences between the two films, Captain Phillips and Gravity, because they are both tense, you know, rides in in some in in their own way. But Gravity to me is really not just for me the experience was wonderful, but it's refreshing in that. And we mentioned it before that it's it's 90 minutes, whatever budget it was, I think they haven't fully been open about it, but it's somewhere in the market or somewhere in there of like 80 to 120 million. All that money is up on the screen and they're able to it is wall to wall special effects for 90 minutes. I really like that as as what it can show how to make the kind of film that gravity is. And I think succeeds really valiantly in what it tries to do. It I just wonder if it really needed to go any deeper and. That's why I think it worked for me. Is what it wants to do. It does. It, it succeeds. Yeah, I, I have to. I have to agree with that. I mean, I think that there because there is a, a sort of a not exactly a backlash, but there, the, the 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 criticism most frequently leveled against the film, aside from the the fact that the ending might be a little bit uh, less impressive than the rest of it, um, is that it hasn't. That there isn't enough of this emotional connection, or that on occasion the actual dialogue or the story beats become a little bit uh, rote. And I guess that's true, but what 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 amazes me about it is I'm I'm ordinarily kind of a story Nazi when it comes to movies, and I will I will, I will seriously, uh, uh, and yet none of that bothered me in this. And I am also a, clearly a completely sentimental fool, but it really did get me emotionally. It really did get me. I was crying on several occasions. Um, so. I mean, it, it is, I think, at a certain point, there seems to me a kind of a, a slight taboo around the, the delicate art of film criticism, where we're not kind of not allowed to say that there might be anything that impinges on our objectivity about a film. But of course there is, because we're all people and we all go in with experiences and tastes under our belt. And uh, and for me, for me, the, the experience of seeing Gravity, I've, I have long had a fascination with space and therefore I have a huge fascination with space movies. And it was the closest I will ever get in my entire life to going into space. And I, I can't, I couldn't possibly ask any more of a movie than that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. so that's, that's really why it does it for me, despite the fact that I, I'm normally such a, 
I'm normally so uh, alert and alive to any narrative failings. In this, just I was just being so blown away on every other level that it didn't. You know, me. I said this in the last podcast when we were talking in Venice and and gravity and uh, Ollie was talking about Venice and um, I'm. Uh, I, it sounds like you had uh, kind of like what I a visceral experience that. Um, I talked about 127 Hours being a movie that, like, mm-hmm. I, I had the same similar experience that you had in Gravity, and then I saw it a second time, and then I saw all the narrative holes, mm-hmm. and um, I wish I hadn't seen it again, and I wish I would have just stuck with the the, the experience because when a, if a movie is so uh, powerful that it blinds you, like, well, I'm not saying Gravity has narrative holes, although maybe for me it does, but like, what I'm saying is basically, I, I I'm okay if a movie is so visceral and powerful for you that it it blinds you to any problems with it i think that's mm. there's something to be said about a movie that does that you know mm. what i mean and i'm i i i even if i would see it on a second or third time and i have all these issues with it i sort of still bow down to any movie that can that can do that i just was trying to think of other films like when you're talking about a visceral experience to an emotional experience mm. and stuff like baraka uh, you know a, a, just a pure visual documentary where Am I getting emotionally connected to things that are happening in there? Not really. I mean, there's a section where I might really? feel bad for the... Well, I mean, there's... Yeah, I, to, in my experience, I'm just kind of lost in the imagery and the the, the technical achievement of it. And um, for me, with that kind of film, it really just... Oh, Baraka. Just, Maybe I'm thinking Koana Skotsky, which right. is like... Yep, some yep. of the stuff in that is just emotionally harrowing. That's true. They go a little bit... They go a lot further in Koana Skotsky with the sort of what we've done to the natural world compared yeah, to you know, yeah, with technology. Yeah, that stuff is like, wow. It's there, right. It's it's there, but I guess what I love about those movies personally and, and it, in a similar way to Gravity is just being blown away, and Jessica touched on this, by, by, what, by the fact that I was transported and mm-hmm. I was experiencing for 90 minutes something that I, I and most people on this planet will never be able to do. It actually makes me think of um, another film that I think was worth seeing in 3D when it came out was the Herzog um, cave documentary, but uh, cave of forgotten dreams, because showing that in 3d provides you a window to a world that most of us will never get to go to those caves. And um, I just think that that was, I, I don't, I don't feel like I'm just saying, Oh, that was enough for gravity. And, and mm. you know, like it, it achieves what it, what it needed to do. And that, that, that was enough for me. I guess. You know, for me, I would definitely say being transported is not enough. If, if that's okay. Uh, uh, in general, because then I just go see an IMAX documentary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but and actually, I, this is I, I think this is better than an IMAX documentary for that. No, no, no. I, I, I uh, hear what you're saying. I'm just saying in general, like like for example, like uh, the the Her- Herzog 3D movie that you mentioned, like that really fell yeah. flat with me. Um, that did not transport me at all. And uh, I, I guess. Uh, in in general, I don't want to talk in such broad terms, but transporting me is not enough. I need a story. I need characters. I need an emotional connection. Well, that's interesting because actually, I mean, I, I totally agree with you on Cave of Forgotten Dreams because that was not. I, I really didn't think that was anything great, and I didn't really think it deserved the three D and or or uh, actually made great use of the three D. Yeah. But, but when we're talking about this emotional and visceral, because I, unfortunately I haven't seen Captain Phillips yet, but I have seen All is Lost, which is the Robert Redford movie, which is coming mm. out in two weeks' time in the States. Yeah. Um, and that, for me, is a, is a really brilliant and incredibly rigorous example of exactly what we're talking about here, because it is 
exactly the story of this experience. You get no backstory. There's like two lines at the very beginning in voiceover that indicates that this man who we are watching for the next two hours or so uh, has a family, but there's nothing else. Like he doesn't have a, a single other line of dialogue except for the odd mayday, mayday, and ouch, and wow. you know, yelping <laughs> when he's... And for the rest of the time, all we're doing is watching him battle one thing after another, climbing masts, he's on the boat, he's off the boat, there's another hole, he's in a dinghy. Um, you know, so... So that for me, uh, and I really appreciated and admired the film on that level, as as on the level of skill. But it did not stay with me at all, and mm. it was um, a completely for me. Uh, it was uh, exactly what people are kind of accusing Gravity of being, which is it was just this visceral experience. It puts you through the ringer uh, right. physically, but not emotionally at all, because I didn't have any connection to him. Um, and you're not really supposed to. And I admired it for its formal rigor in that regard, but it's not something mm -hmm. I took to my heart, and it's certainly not something that stayed with me. I think it's a really brilliantly done film, and they uh, J.C. Chander deserves all the props in the world, as does Robert Redford, for physically putting himself through that role. But as a film, as a sort of a, a satisfying, rounded film-going experience, Gravity knocks it, uh, knocks it on its ass in, in my eyes. Yeah, and I, I'd say Gravity is simplistic as it is in its character development for the Sandra Bullock character. I feel like it was enough because generally I just don't, I don't, I'm invested enough in that character simply because no person deserves to die the potential death yeah. she, that's looming for her. And I feel like that simple conceit is enough. And um, Quaron, I mean, is seems like he's really, or at least with the last two films, has been interested in simple stories. Children of Men is a very simple point A to point B structure, um, but you get everything else that's there layered in the background. Gravity is more, yeah, maybe it's more on the surface, but man, that, that surface was, is, is, amazing. is so. Uh, interestingly that there is, we, we uh, had a, had an article about it on the blog, um, but there is a seven minute short film directed by Goran's son, Jonas, who also co-wrote the script for Gravity. Um, and it's called um, Aningak. I hope I hope I got that right. Um, but it's it's basically um, which I just think is a beautiful idea anyway for a spin-off sort of short film. It's the other side of the conversation that Sandra Bullock has with the man who she can't understand um, when she makes contact uh, briefly um, in the in the little shuttle pod thing. Um, and she uh, so it's it's set on Earth. It's in Greenland, and he's the star of it. And it's that moment where he he suddenly makes contact with somebody who he doesn't understand either. But somehow they manage to set up this little communication. And there's the dogs that howl, and there's the baby that cries. Um, and it's uh, the UK writer Neil Young has done a very uh, detailed breakdown of it. Um, but we haven't managed to see it yet because bizarrely they haven't shown it really anywhere in conjunction with Gravity. I mean, I can understand why they don't show it as a trailer. They showed it in Venice. A, a, did they? But they yeah. but they showed it separate separately from the film. Um, it was, they showed it. Um, yeah, they, sh they, they did. Show it. They Apparently, at the beginning of uh, like basically, they showed it as a short. In in uh, strangely enough, out of context, like yeah, so like you're watching Stray Dogs or something. And, I think uh, they showed they screened it for uh, tracks that Mia Wasikowska film. Yes, yeah, they, they, they showed they showed and, and and in the states somewhere, apparently they've showed it before. We're the Millers, which blows my <laughs> mind completely. What? Yes, exactly. As kind of a glorified trailer or something for Gravity, they showed it before We're the Millers, which is, you know, absolutely genius marketing, whoever thought of that one. Well, they're um, both Warner Brothers films. Uh, yes, so well, maybe the, that's so the Warner Brothers genius was like, oh, yeah. here's, here's, here's a creative way. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
But yes, uh, certainly he's suggesting, and I think I think he's right. Um, it would be a fantastic post credits sequence because you, you don't you wouldn't want to run it before the film because it's kind of a spoiler for what's going to happen later on in the film, I guess. Um, but I just I think it's a, a, a beautiful idea, and um, from everybody who I've read uh, who has seen it. They absolutely rave about it. I mean, it's only seven minute short film, but they really rave about it. And they rave about it, especially on the level of it giving a kind of retrospective, serious emotion, emotional heft to to gravity, actually, if you if you regard it as a companion piece to gravity. So, I mean, I know that's going to be on the DVD. Um, I do wish they had found a way to to make it the post credit sequence on the end of our gravity screenings. But I'm really excited to see that now. What did you guys think of uh they're sort of counterintuitively doing the opposite that you would think with Sandra Bullock's character because she has nothing to live for. She has no child. She has nobody. Um, mm -hmm. And you would think it would sort of be the opposite, but maybe that's the point. I don't know. I think that I, is ultimately the, the, if the movie has a message is that like, there's an inherent thing that humans have like a need to just survive, to do whatever it is that it takes to, to just keep living. I, th I mean, I feel like that's what the movie's saying. Well, I think, I don't know, I don't think it's just, you see, I also don't think it's just about survival. All is Lost is just about survival. The Robert Redford character mm -hmm. in that becomes basically the human personification of the desire to survive. We don't know anything else about him. We just know he's a guy who wants to keep on living. Um, whereas for me, gravity is ha has uh, emotional undercurrents that kind of make that a little bit less, uh, you know, a little bit, maybe a less pure, but also... A little bit more truthful or something because actually there's something else going on in gravity where it's actually you well maybe I'm, I'm probably I'm reading way too much into it but you you owe you owe all the people who have died you owe it to them to go on living and that's what I think the conclusion she comes to um, mm -hmm. and in a way it's because she lost her daughter and it's because she's lost Kowalski and it's because she's lost all of the crew on that on that mission that she that that's how where she finds her will to survive See, that's the um, best point I've heard about this movie so far from anybody ever. <laughs> okay. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, but even, like, when she gets back to Earth and there's the frog uh, that swims past her, which is in the script, apparently. I, I hadn't read the script, but my boyfriend had read the script, oh, wow. and he couldn't believe the frog, the frog that swims past. Like, this is how detailed the script was already, you know, however many years ago. The frog that swims past her in the water when she's trying mm -hmm. to struggle to get out of her spacesuit, um, uh, that was written into the script. So the idea and then that the camera were, even like lingers on the frog yeah, for a little camera, bit. Camera lingers, yes, and there, a frog will pass by, and we'll follow the frog up to the surface. Um, and uh, so for me, that was again the second time. Probably I got more of this the second time, but but those sort of elements of nature that she is suddenly surrounded by. There's the the buzzing of the of the insects when she comes up and. Uh, the tweeting of the birds and the the frog and the fish and just life, this sort of sense mm -hmm. of life. And if she crawls out of that lake like she's crawling out of the primordial soup. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and there's all of these sort of uh, things about rebirth and the metaphors of rebirth. Obviously, there's the 2001 ripoff shot that kind of bothered Ollie, but I just think it's such a beautiful shot and so worked for me in the context of the film that it didn't bother right. me. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, all of these sort of symbols of rebirth and of life and of why why it is that we need to keep on living. I, I really found it a very beautiful and quite moving experience on, on that emotional level that I guess you guys didn't find there. I'm going to go see Jessica's 
Uh, I want on the Blu-ray and the DVD. I want to just have Jessica's experience. I don't really want to see Gravity. I just want to. I want to have like some sort of uh, emotional recording of what Jessica experienced, and that that to me is better than Gravity. <laughs> uh, I wonder if just looking at the ending, because um, I want to hand it off to Kevin maybe one more time before we move to the next segment. Is is maybe is the ending where it just got too repetitive for you? Like we were just like you were describing pause peril. Where did it push things a little too far with the ending by the fact that um, when she lands, she's got a. Sh- I-, I was like, God, really? You're gonna like push it this far? Like she lands, but then then there's the whole issue of the water and that she might yeah, drown, that, that, and then her suit. Yeah, you know? that per- yeah that particular scene kind of took me out, I guess, of the movie by that point. Like I was kind of riding with it, but even by that point, and I have to say, when I, I saw the film in Toronto. Uh, when that scene happened, that sort of last scene, there was a sort of very audible from a couple of people around me, a very audible kind of sigh. Yeah. That like there was there was sort of one more hurdle that we have to go through with the score kind of cranked to ten, and uh, the score yeah. is a little bit much sometimes. Yeah, and that's another sort of niggling thing <laughs> is that I think the score is beautiful. Like I really like the score, like on its own, like it's kind of really great. But I do think mm-hmm. there's a tendency in the films. Uh, to sort of oversell some of the moments just by like cranking that score like to ten, and then just having all this stuff happen as she goes through. Yeah, I mean, one, one, you know, yeah, one... particularly in the end, there it just. Um, <clears throat> yeah, you're right. It could like it's 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 terrific music. It's just maybe um, emphasized a little much in the yeah. in that last act where it might have been a little bit more graceful to dial it back slightly. And I, I'm actually curious what you guys think. I mean, we've already talked about the ending, so whoever's listening now, or whatever, we're talking about spoilers. Um, <laughs> yeah. What, Sorry, yes. What do you guys... Okay. No, it's fine, it's fine. I think most people mm-hmm. listening to this probably saw the movie already. Uh, what do you guys think of the ghost Clooney showing up? Mm. Was in okay, the I was... That scene for me, too, like, I found it kind of manipulative, and yeah, I was going I, to I, say, it really okay. didn't work for me. Okay, having, having, I think, maybe communicated that I'm quite a fan of this film, I will say the only thing that bothers me on that story narrative level was that, that after the first screening as well, like even while it was happening, because, I mean, I don't know, I, I, but I know Alfonso Cuaron enough and I trust him enough that, that I knew from the first second that this is a dream. Also, she's just fallen asleep and then something completely and utterly impossible happens. So... Mm-hmm. I kind of knew that from the beginning. And then as a result, it didn't work. That, that, that twist didn't work for me. But however, the people around me in the cinema seemed to absolutely adore that, that part and really enjoy it. So I kind of, I gave it a pass on that basis, but, and also because I didn't, I mean, I've, I've given everything that I, any issue I have with this movie a pass because I was so generally blown away by it. But, um, but yes, I, I would think of all of the things that anybody has mentioned as being things that they didn't, they didn't like about it. That came closest to taking me out of the movie for a moment or two. Right. Um, you know, I will say for me that that scene doesn't work. And, just bear in mind, I haven't like I saw this film in the middle of Toronto, so I may be fuzzy on on a, a couple things. But for me, like at that point, Bullock's character is kind of somewhat defeated mm-hmm. until Ghost Clooney shows up, and then she's suddenly reinvigorated and, and ready to like go again into the final act. And for me, that kind of undermines her character a bit. It kind of like I I don't want to on a know gender that. level. 
on a somewhat on a gender level, just somewhat in general. Like, I don't want to see. I want her motivation to be pure. Like, I don't need Ghost Clooney showing up and giving a little rah rah speech, and then she wakes up. And then write a movie called Ghost Clooney. Ghost Clooney. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then she goes off into her final, you know, into her final push to survive. Like, I just kind of didn't need that. The the movie certainly needs something to galvanize her because the whole point is that she is defeated. Oh, Um, for sure. So I understand why they put it in there, but yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I get why they put it in. For for me, it's, like I I said, it's just a little, a little manipulative, a little, I don't know. I just wish they had found a different way to do it. Yeah, I I agree. I think it's it's a little graceless is what it is. It is is where so much of the movie is so graceful. I mean, from, from, you know, the actual watching of it is this very graceful experience. And that to me was a little bit graceless. But, I have to say, I didn't. It didn't undercut her character for me because he is a projection of her. Of of her. I mean, right. whatever right. happens there is happening inside her head, and it is mm. she is finding the reserves within herself to to go on living. Right. And the fact that she, that... yeah, the fact that she happens to manifest that as as George Clooney. I mean, I, I should be so lucky to have that kind of inner manifestation. Of my, <laughs> so of is the movie. So, so is the movie saying we all have a ghost Clooney inside of us? I, I think so. I think. I think <laughs> really got to the heart of it there. You guys are going to make me start to weep because it's <laughs> too bad it wasn't Ghost Dad. It could have been Bill Cosby. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess I was just going to say as far as the Clooney thing just makes sense that it, that's who she would conjure in this hallucination dream thing is that he's the guy with all the experience and she's the character with no experience in space. So anything she can you know, anything she's uh, any, but she could, yeah, but and could it, she not I, conjure anyone from her own like we, I don't know, whatever. I mean, it just. No, you know, I mean, I mean, think about from her it. own life. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, but think about it in the situation that just happened to her, where she's so dependent on this person, and yeah, she's so desperate that of course, like her imagination, in a way, is gonna. Who do you think she? If she can conjure any up anyone up in her mind, do you think she's gonna want to call? conjure up her daughter like what's her daughter going to do in that situation absolutely nothing you know, other I don't know than but, she's a, but she's you know? a grown woman with experiences too and she's lived a life but so not in space ha- though this is her first this is i guess turn, yeah. You know. yeah and i think i think she yeah. needs a, a, what at that point she needs is is not even so much to be convinced of her need to survive she actually needs somebody who can find a way to actually tell her the practical things that she needs to do to survive. And if I were yep. to, you know, it's, it's, it's the Clooney character who said, who tells her that, you know, launching is landing. And so she works right. out that she can use the thrusters, blah, blah, blah. So I don't think that you could really have had that kind of exposition coming from her four-year-old daughter. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, again, I, I, I agree with you though. I, I understand why it's there and it, it completely does the job that it's supposed to, but it does feel it's the least graceful part of a very graceful movie for me. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's fair. As we record this podcast, you guys, I'm looking right at my shelf of DVDs and, you know, scattered throughout that collection is plenty of titles from Focus Features. And uh, I think it just goes to show that I, I mean, I personally have really loved a lot of their output and now things are going to, going to change for, for the mini studio, I guess we'd call it. And it's that James Shamus, who's been the CEO for, for quite a while and has collaborated with Ang Lee quite a bit on a lot of his films is out. And then they're bringing in Peter Schlesel, the uh, founder and CEO formerly of film district. So I'm just curious, um, some people are sort of uh, already getting a little hyperbolic or, you know, saying the sky is falling in terms of, 
the changes that are going to happen with focus. But um, I'm going to hand it off to Kevin and see, you know, maybe people like Ann Thompson who are saying that kiss the old focus features goodbye. Are they maybe being a little too, are they jumping the gun maybe just a little bit? Uh, I think so. I mean, I, I mean, until we really see what this new guy does, I mean, we can't really know one way or the other. I do think um, that Universal is probably looking to focus to handle more, more films, because the general landscape uh, in Hollywood for all the studios is that all the big studios are just going to make pure blockbusters because that's where the money is. And then even mid-budgeted yeah, dramas, whatever, anything, anything that's sort of mid-budget, anything that's slightly not you know, a big s- spectacle is probably going to be start handling by side by offshoot divisions. So I think it's just, I think it's just symbolic of, of universal's desire to sort of use their main brand on big movies and, and focus features will be, I think we'll still get art house stuff. I think they're probably, they're probably going to do more genre movies because film district, uh, they did a lot of that stuff. They put out like Olympus has fallen and, Similar types of movies this year. Uh, drive, bo- drive and Looper. And Drive. And yeah, that behind. was a different company, by the way. It was handled by different people oh, back then. Right. Yeah. The, and the, the, the film okay. district of Drive and the film district of Olympus Has Fallen oh, right. is pretty different. And if you look, if you pull up like every film district movie and you look at their, like, look at their last six titles and they're all films that are kind of terrible. Yeah. But they're also behind, <laughs> in, well, they're also behind Insidious, which I think is what they're. MO might be for some of the future focus output, which is very cheap to make and hopefully will turn a big profit. Sure. Uh, to your point so, about, uh, uh, you know, like it could, yeah, things will change, but it could be as simple as something like, you know, Universal's Rush being put out by focus features rather than Universal. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think, uh, isn't, sorry, what I actually, because I read the, the statement originally, and if I was parsing that statement correctly, uh, they, they have said, I mean, that what they want to do with focus is broaden, I mean, not shift its 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 perspective, but broaden it. And they want to up the, the production or the number of movies they put out per year from six to 10. So, you know, in the best case scenario, that means that focus stays much the same or has much the same remit as it already does, but plus another four movies, which will probably be much more in the genre territory. Now, obviously, the, the balance isn't going to work out quite like that, but I, I really think the sky is falling kind of prognosticators are a little bit hysterical. Mm-hmm. Well, in general, like to proclaim the sky is falling about anything <laughs> is a bad idea simply because it's just you got to wait and see. But yeah, I can understand the concern, but yeah. But the the other thing that interests me in all of this now I'm I, I really um, I don't pretend to be any sort of a, an LA business industry insider person but but I mean what interests me then is that James Sheamus is now essentially a free agent I don't know how bitter um, his his leaving focus has been but it does mean that there's this man who is incredibly well respected and has a huge number of friends who is now essentially a free agent there. So, I mean, the best case scenario, surely, uh, that we want you, we should be hoping for is that he goes off and sets up his own thing or he teams up in some kind of superhero team up, team up with Megan Ellison or somebody. Um, <laughs> you know, so the, <laughs> surely it's a good thing because it means that there will be one more stream where hopefully decent movies can come from. He's got a lot of options, sure. And he could go mm. to, like, you know, any of the existing uh, mini studios and work there. He could set up shop somewhere else. He could, yeah, like you said. I, I think if there's any sort of slight reason to, I don't know, be slightly concerned is that he does have 
you know, a decade's worth of history with a lot of great filmmakers that mm-hmm. this new guy might not have. And perhaps in the push for focus to be broader, some of the more challenging films that focus might have done happily in the past might have to fight at the table for Mm. Uh, against something like I don't know, Insidious Four or whatever. Well, and at the same time, everyone, every at the same time, every kind of film that Focus makes has to fight at the table. That all mid-sized yeah. dramas are fighting at the table these days. So that's nothing new. That's it's true. just part of mm-hmm. uh, part of the and, the climate right now. And wasn't part of the context where this whole thing was about about Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, I believe uh, something about uh, it was it's the CEO of Universal who's Donna Langley I believe mm-hmm. and um, she was per- she became personally involved in the fight for the rights and then they won the rights to Fifty Shades of Grey and that's been long been seen as one of the reasons for this whole general reshuffle um, because they're basically going to be putting a lot of eggs into their Fifty Shades of Grey basket and so I wonder how much of you know how much even time or or particular you know mind space they have to be spending on their smaller art house movies yeah to rod's thing about you know rush would be you know would feasibly a kind of movie like rush would be released on focus features actually ron howard's next film is going to be on focus features there you go Mm -hmm. news today on the site just dropped that uh quentin tarantino the ever talkative filmmaker and uh always willing to give his opinion on movies has released his top 10 films so far and uh, to say the least, there are uh, some uh, some interesting choices on there. And I, I have to start with, with Rod on this one because we both disagreed about his last film, Django Unchained. And I'm just wondering, maybe before, as a way for you to get into what you think about his opinion of these, what he thinks are the best movies so far this year. Um, how do you feel about Tarantino? Are you just, are you sick of him? It seemed like with your review of Django that you're kind of done with this guy. Is that fair? Um. No, because I'm never really done with anyone. Uh, I okay. don't think it's fair to dismiss anyone like that. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, there's certainly many other filmmakers who I'm much more uh, anticipating their films each each year. I mean, he's certainly fallen back uh, in, in my mind. Uh, he's not, not necessarily one of my favorite filmmakers anymore. Um, more and I like his list. His list has got a lot of indie movies, and and, and I don't mean that. Yay, he's just mm-hmm. bumping uh, indie movies. I don't, I don't, I don't have a stake in in it either way. But good indie movies, like this year, as as we realized in our top ten of the films of the summer, um, we did we did top ten films of the summer, and most of them ended up being indie films. Not because we wanted to sh- push indie films, but because blockbusters also had ha- happened to have a really terrible summer this year. Um, so, uh, you know, a lot of the indie films were on there and, and, and his list is, is sort of full of those and that's kind of cool. Um, but I, I just question the, the, you know, he's really the only filmmaker who does not only a top 10 films of the year, but the so far list. And I don't know, it's just kind of interesting to me that he has the, the balls to do that in it, I guess, for lack of a better word, because in doing those lists, you're excluding other people's films. And in the past, um, you know, he hasn't been shy of like, I think he did a worst list at one point and then he took it down and, you know, he, he gave that dig to drive. Like he was, he gave it a a nice try and things like that. And, um, I, I guess it also shows that he doesn't care because, uh, I'm sure there are lots of other filmmakers who have their own top tens, but, and, and are very vocal within their friends about what they liked and what they loved and disliked and stuff like that. But, uh, they, probably wisely don't uh, publish it to the public. Mm. So uh, I don't know. I just think that's interesting because it sort of shows 
a little bit about him, I guess. Yeah, I mean, he, he he's not afraid to certainly maybe potentially burn bridges with other filmmakers that he's probably going to meet at some point or another, or he could. Mm-hmm. But I think this is just proof that Tarantino is really good at keeping uh, reminding people that he's out there. You know what I mean? Mm. Like he has, he's not, he's, he has no film coming out as far as we know in the next year or two. So um, while I think it's genuine that he's that enthusiastic enough to want to put his so far list out already, he, he just, I think he's really good at staying in the public. uh, Uh, But you know what? I would consciousness. I would disagree that this is some sort of calculated move to stay in the consciousness. I think it's, I know the guy, I know the guy who runs that, that Tarantino site. And he uh, mm-hmm. he has he corresponds with Tarantino, and so I think he like asks him these things, and like, hey, would you want, would you want to do this? And he's like, yeah, sure. So I think that's part of it. If that guy wasn't running that site and not emailing Quentin every few months, stuff like that, you may not get those lists. I just think it's great mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. he's giving shine to a bunch of movies that I think a certain segment of Quentin Tarantino devotees would never pay attention to. Mm-hmm. I think that's just kind of yeah, Francis kind of nice. Like, uh, buddies. yeah, exactly. yeah, that's true. That's true. So that's kind of nice. Yeah, I think it's interesting. It is, I wish. I, I, no, sorry. Um, I, I, I just nope. I, in general, I wish that that Quentin Tarantino actually did care a little bit more about what people thought of him. To be honest, I mean, as I as, <laughs> as 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 little as uh, as Rod clearly thought of Django Unchained, I think I can go toe to toe with him on, on hating it even more. I mean, I, I loathe I loathed Aww. that film, The Fire of a Thousand Suns. Um, I really, really, really disliked it. And so, so the whole thing about like it's kind of great that he doesn't care who, which bridges he's burning and all the rest, and he's you know really doesn't mind if he's uh, biting the hand that feeds in a way. For so long, to me now, Tarantino has just become this sort of bloated personality. Certainly, uh, to your point, continuing your point. Tarantino does not understand humility. No. But but wait, but why he? But, <laughs> if but, his Oscar why, speech uh, is proof of But that. listen, but why should he? His 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 movies are doing better at the box office than like each one. Because it's human beings, we should all be humble the critic, and modest the critics people. Largely embrace his movies. He gets nominated for Oscars. Like from his perspective, so that gives no so that gives him a carte blanche to be like arrogant. Jackass, From his perspective, why not? No, yeah, I, I think it kind of does. Like, it's not as if his his films are being critically reviled and he's like continuing on doing his thing. He's doing what he what he feels he do, he does best. He's being embraced. So why would he change his program? I'm not saying that he's 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 doing it wrong from a strategic point of view. I mean, he's obviously he's incredibly successful, famous, and rich, and he's doing a lot of things right. If that's if those are the matrixes on which he wants to con- continue to succeed. However, if he wants to get into my good books, which is, <laughs> what I say, which is where everybody should want to be, he right. really does need to make uh, shorter, right. better films. Well, you know that I think his publicist is definitely going to send this to him. And maybe, <laughs> maybe, yes, uh, I know. I'm sorry, Quentin. I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I'm being harsh to be kind. I, I do love, love the tongue lashing <laughs> that you gave him though. And the film, I would basically say, uh, yeah, I feel the same, but I don't feel the need to say it just because whatever. <laughs> he's, he, well, he does kind of he's, irritate I mean, me, I'll say that. I mean, he's also, even just to go further off of what Kevin said, like, it's not that he, uh, well, he's been reinforced, especially after his, um, after Death Proof, that was, that was the film where he got punished, you know, by some critics and the film did poorly in the box office. But to be fair, he came back with a really, really strong effort. What I, I might say is his best film with Inglorious Bastards. And the 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 critics and the public has rewarded him ever since, and even with Django, he wins an Oscar. So yeah, I mean, it's I think what Kevin's saying is it's um it's just you can see why he's 
going further and further into maybe just liking the sound of his own voice or just, you know, doesn't have as much humility because he's been rewarded for uh, making the things that he's making. And uh, people, people still like hearing his opinion, but I still got to say, great that he uh, is championing these smaller films, but what do you guys think about the fact that like things like The Lone Ranger and Kick-Ass 2 show up on this list? Uh, I just, it's like bizarre to me. I don't know. Well, Kick-Ass was on his 2010 list and his list have always had sort of whatever blockbustery, forgettable movies on them. So it's not really a surprise anymore. He put Three Musketeers, that crappy Paul W.S. Anderson movie on one, like on one year. So I don't know. I think he, I think he has a certain weakness for crap. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm sorry, that's way more damning than anything else. Say, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I would just love to see making some tighter, shorter films. Yes. Um, that's Thank been you. a big problem for a while now. But yeah. even like, so, but the Lone Ranger on his list, I would say if he did a commentary for that movie, I would listen to it because I would just want to see that movie yeah. through his eyes. Because I can't really think of a reason to watch that movie ever again. So, <laughs> yeah, and then you wouldn't hear the annoying little kid talking. You'd just hear Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> exactly. Over it all. So before before we do close off, uh, I just wanted to give an you know pass it off to each one of you to give an opportunity just to mention something that's uh, that's going on that you're you know a piece of media or uh, in this instance I'm going to start with Rod to talk about the New York Film Festival and a film in particular he and Jess wanted to just to, to give some love to. So go ahead, Rod. Oh yeah. Yeah. So New York film festival is underway right now. And you know, there's been a bunch of good stuff. Uh, I don't know if anything that we haven't necessarily discussed, but uh, one film in particular that's quite great is uh, Gloria, um, a Chilean film by, uh, fuck, I forget his name. Sebastian Leo. Thank you. Sebastian Leo. Yeah. Um, and it's a movie that uh, we never see. It's like a, um, it's, it's like the, the, the film that like, there's a, a, a story of, uh, normally there's a, there's a, say there's a frame and there's a family and the, the, the character is, is the, the young man. Um, and his mom is in the corner and this movie is like, movie is like zooms in on her and makes the movie about her, uh, kind of thing where normally she would have like two lines of dialogue and never be seen again. And and then like this movie decides to like follow that character for the entire movie. And it's such a bold and brave thing. Maybe only if, because we never see, I mean, female films are just so in, uh, in, you know, they're just not made anymore or not really anyhow. There's such a dearth of them. And, uh, it's just this awesome character study of this, uh, middle-aged woman, probably in her mid fifties. She's divorced. And, God, I know that probably, unfortunately, sounds so boring to so many people, at least young male critics, but it's probably one of the most exciting things I saw at the entire New York Film Festival. And I don't know if it's like necessarily 100% perfect either. I'm not even sure I would necessarily give it um, an A or anything like that. Maybe like a, I don't know, just in terms of grades, maybe like a B plus or something. But it's just so memorable and such a great character study and has so many terrific moments. And the, and the woman, Pauline, Paulina Garcia, is fantastic in it. Yeah, um, I, I have to agree. Like she, I, I reviewed the film out of the Berlinale last year, and um, she won the Silver Bear for Best Actress of this performance. Um, and uh, I think the other thing is, is it's not just 
that it's a character who we very rarely see, you know, being put for front and center of a movie. Uh, also, she's not just front and center. She is in every single frame of the film. There is not one shot that doesn't have her in it in some, in some way. Right. And, um, and- but but it's it's not just that it's the character that she plays is su- such an unusual character to see and not just because for because of her gender and because of her age but actually because of it, the the her personality she yeah. I, I mentioned this in the review that I ran it's really unusual to sit in a movie for two hours and watch a film especially an art house film I guess which is I guess which is you know where this lies um, that is about a fundamentally good happy person. Like she's mm. actually, she's a happy person. She's not tortured by some terrible guilt. She doesn't have some yeah. awful, terrible tragedy in her past. She's like an ordinary woman who thinks quite well of herself, who makes mistakes, but mm-hmm. she forgives herself for them. It's a really, really unusual character. And it's, it sounds like exactly the sort of thing that should not make a compelling movie. And yet it absolutely does. Yeah, there's like, in, in many ways, there's little plot to it. Um, mm. There's very little um, of this sort of like, you know, okay, you know, the, like uh, your first act, uh, conflict and then your second act conflict and it sort of doesn't really have that kind of three act structure to it. I mean, I guess it, if you really broke it down, it does, but it's very, uh, it's very, it's sort of just like a, a, a chronicle of her and, and, and what happens to her in the space of time. And it's just, I mean, the other thing is like, you know, whatever, there's all this gender stuff. We don't see an age stuff. We don't see this character, but regardless of all that, she's just so incredibly well-defined Mm. I mean, I think that's what Jess was getting at, and it's just mm. such a like you 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 think this is a, a person in real life. She's just such a yeah. a, a well rounded, three dimensional, awesome person, and it's like you want to see this kind of writing um, in every character at all times. Yeah, yeah, and 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 she's yeah, she's a really a living person, but she's also an incredibly warm person, and it makes spending time in her company a real pleasure. It's a really uplifting yeah. film as well. Bizarrely, yeah. even though nothing like sort of on the grand scheme of things dramatic and uplifting happens, but it's an incredibly joyous experience to watch yeah. because just because she's so wonderful. Yeah, everybody needs to excellent, see this Excellent, excellent. Mm. And it's the Chilean uh, and do um, we know when- Academy Award uh, nominee, nominee. Oh, is it? Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, good. Good, that might hopefully get some, doubt, some more attention we'll that it's going to need. Probably till after the Oscars. That's that's generally what happens mm-hmm. with these sort of things. They become the Oscar nominee, so it's not going to be in, you know, that happens like late March uh, or, or early March, uh, late February. And then depending on whether it wins or whatever, that's how they roll out their schedule. So it's probably, a, I bet you we'll see it in the spring of 2014. Um, well, good. We're, we're all going to have to keep, keep an eye out because films like that need all the support they can get. And just, you know, keep an eye on it out there, folks. Uh, Kevin, anything you'd like to give a shout out to? Uh, well, the past week I haven't really watched a lot of films, but um, I managed to get a copy of uh, Lawrence Anyways on Blu-ray, which I'm, I'm going to be doing a short piece next week. Um, one thing that sort of stood out for me on that uh, in the extras actually is a, a sort of really great um, feature on the deleted scenes. And it's not just a bunch of scenes like thrown onto the disc. It actually has uh, Javier Dolan sitting down and actually explaining why scenes were cut, what he did and didn't film, and how he sort of put the film together. Um, so it was kind of nice to see because we don't really get that very often in DVD material. So that was kind of great and sort of stood out for me. And uh, I just want to shout out the new Pusha T track, Nostalgia, because it's awesome. <laughs> everyone And everyone should listen to it. And the Kendrick Lamar verse is amazing. So that's, that's not the, that's the one that Joaquin Phoenix did not produce, right? 
No, that's a, that's a different track. That's uh, King Push. This is a new one. But this but is yeah. the club banger that you're recommending for everybody. Yeah, man. <laughs> Do it. Good to know. <laughs> Very nice. God, I feel like a clueless old man. I don't even know what you were talking about. <laughs> that is. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> Uh, well, cool. Well, uh, good call on Lawrence anyways, uh, Kevin. It just makes me think we've talked about kind of messy movies that just sort of their flaws and their messiness maybe help elevate it above something that you might be more critical of. Um, and Lawrence, like you guys both really loved Kevin and Rod really loved Rust and Bone from last year. And mm. uh, also, um, I am blanking on the Sarah Polly film with um, with uh, Jesus Christ, with Seth Rogen. Take this waltz. And, um, yeah. Take this thank waltz. you. Thank you. Yeah. You know. Lawrence anyways is another film that just kind of makes me think of that, you know, those where you you might have, you might consider them flawed, but that sort of adds to the messy reality that's being presented in those films. And it's another film that, yeah, Lawrence anyways. And and it's just kind of great to see a director uh, really explain why, like how he put the movie together. And it sort of gives you a greater insight into why why it's even structured, why the long movie, it's like two and a half hours is structured the way it is and why oh, certain yeah. things right. stayed. So it's great. The I suppose the thing actually that made the, the biggest impression on me um, this week uh, was actually I wrote it, uh, I watched it, uh, rewatched it in order to write for a Gravity um, feature that we did, which was 10 films to see before and after Gravity, which is up on the side at the moment. Um, and the first five of them were the mm-hmm. five films that Alfonso Cuaron himself name-checked as being the movies that... Uh, inspired him um, when making Gravity. And of those five, the one that I got to rewatch and just rediscover and re-find absolutely amazing was, of course, Robert Bresson's A Man Escaped, which mm. is just an absolutely mm. incredible, sublime piece of movie making. Yes, and yes, yes. Really, it's, it's just so wonderful. And there's nothing I can say about it that will even remotely adequately convey just how compelling a film he makes out of basically one guy being put in prison. Um, but it is, it is such a, a, a truly, truly, it's a really true masterpiece. So yes, if anybody hasn't seen it, watch it, watch it immediately because it's absolutely fantastic. And then obviously read the feature, which is also fantastic. Um, <laughs> and, and, and then go read our Brisson feature that we did. Yeah, and then I'll read our Brisson feature as well. And then everybody fantastic. go and watch all those films because they're fucking <laughs> Um, so that's my yeah. shout out. I would like to give a, a reverse shout out to the first two episodes of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., um, which were really, <laughs> really disappointing. And uh, it just felt like going back to watching movie, uh, watching TV in the late 80s, early 90s again. Um, so, yeah, uh, I yeah, wasn't impressed by those. I tried watching like 10 minutes of like the first episode and it was so brutal. I just could not. Yeah, like, even, I, like I changed the channel. It was it was awful. Even the first the first episode is actually better than the second episode. The first episode even has Here. more of the the witty quips um, that oh, we might expect God. from this. But the second episode doesn't <clears throat> even have those, and actually even leaves a few of them hanging. You know, it's, uh, the punchlines <laughs> hanging. It's 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 actually it, it's pretty excruciating. Um, but the second episode for for geeks out there does have Nick Fury come in at the very end. Samuel L. Jackson comes in at the very end. So there's that. Um, and, uh, and then one yeah. more shout out for Gravity, right? One more shout out for which? <laughs> gravity. <laughs> for what? Oh, for Gravity. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm just making fun of you. Yeah, no. So I don't. I don't think anybody. In case <laughs> people don't realize that there's a movie that's in the cinemas now. It's a 3D film that's directed by this guy called Alfonso Cuaron, and it's really quite good. Stars Ghost Clooney. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's th- those were my shout outs. Sweet. Well done, well done. Well, yeah, with that, guys, um, I just wanted to thank um, all three of you for coming on, Kevin, Rod, and Jessica. 
Um, looking forward to having you on again soon. And uh, yeah, thanks again, guys. Thank, Thank you, Eric. All right. Later. Later.